Thanks for listening to Porchlight Music Theater's WPMT. If you love classic musicals, why not check out Porchlight's Sondheim at 90 Roundtable, our discussion series focusing on the complete works of Stephen Sondheim, with me, Porchlight Artistic Director Michael Weber. I've had a great time discussing all of the musicals of Sondheim's incredible career with stars from Chicago theater, Broadway, and beyond weekly throughout Sondheim's 90th birthday year. Listen today to Sondheim at 90 Roundtable for a behind-the-scenes deep dive into the mind, the music, and the writing methods of one of music theater's greatest composers. Available right here on your favorite podcast platform. Search for Sondheim at 90 Roundtable or visit porchlightmusictheater.org for more information. I'm Michael Weber, Artistic Director of Chicago's Porchlight Music Theater. Today's another special edition of Classic Musicals from the Golden Age of Radio with our special guest, New York City-based dramaturg and writer Annika Chapin. Named one of Broadway Women's Fund's 50 Women to Watch, she is currently the Artistic Associate and Resident Dramaturg at Goodspeed Musicals, where she scouts and develops new productions. Hello, Annika. Hello. I'm so happy to have you here with us today. I'm very happy to be here as well. Great. In March 1943, composer Richard Rodgers and librettist lyricist Oscar Hammerstein II galvanized Broadway with their audacious new musical, Oklahoma. Assuring they were not one-hit wonders, their follow-up project, Carousel, two years later, confirmed they had become the gold standard as musical comedy was maturing to become the musical play. And in 1947, they opened their newest and wholly original production, Allegro. And that's what we'll be listening to today. Now, Annika, um, get us into this moment. Where was Rogers and Hammerstein's partnership at this particular moment in, in their journey together? Well, they were really on top of the world in many ways. They had already proven themselves with some of the shows you mentioned as artistic powerhouses. I mean, as a composer and librettist and book writer, Oklahoma, Carousel, they had written State Fair in Hollywood. I mean, they had already written amazing classic pieces of work that we still talk about today. And they were also at the same time, really prolific producers who had brought shows to Broadway, like I Remember Mama, the play, and also, um, and to get your gun. So they were just firing on all cylinders and everybody was waiting for what they were going to do next. I think they were waiting for what they were going to do next. They had just kind of been catapulted into the upper ranks of musical theater writing and theater in general at that time, which I think actually really resonates with what they chose to do in Allegro because mm -hmm. there's a lot of parallel between the protagonist's issues in Allegro and the things that Oscar Hammerstein especially was facing at the time, the central debate of how do you stay true to your values? How do you do what you do well and what you care about when you are shunted into success and everybody wants you to do basically what you're not good at anymore because you are successful? You know, you become a, a professional, successful person instead of right. being the person that made you successful in the first place. So right. I think that was a very real concern for them. 
I think that sometimes we forget that when, when we come to Rodgers and Hammerstein, we forget that they had years of writing, each of them separately, and many successes and many flops before mm-hmm. they then fused. And, and so all of that also in terms of they knew Oscar Hammerstein understood a flop, he, you know, yes. you know, they, they had not always been, you know, they had the Midas touch here. Yes. No, absolutely. They were both really seasoned theatrical pros who had worked in do- other collaborations as well. But there was something about the two of them working together that was just a special kind of magic. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a few of the other things that were going on on Broadway at that time, shows like Annie Get Your Gun, other composers that, that were um, maybe even writing before them who were still working in the field, like Irving Berlin, like Cole Porter. So what was sort of the state of Broadway at this time at 1947, post-World War II, just immediately post-World War II? Well, it was a very exciting time because the industry was shifting in such a real way. There were still the older forms of shows alive and well, these kind of lighter musical comedies that had been present in the 20s and the 30s, like the spiritual children of operetta in some Mm -hmm. ways, Um, very light, very frothy, just fun, fun, fun kind of comedies. And then there was just starting to be this much more uh, serious, darker, integrated character pieces uh, that Rodgers and Hammerstein were really at the forefront of doing, as we saw with something like Oklahoma and certainly with Carousel, which was not so much that the plot and the music was integrated, which is often something that they are credited with with Oklahoma, which is not quite entirely true because that was true before, but they really were writing dramatically deep pieces where the music and all of the elements and all of the characters were telling a, a story that had a real depth and grounding to it. So all of these things were sort of happening at the same time. And you were starting to see these amazing talents be present while at the same time, there were these older forces still very much at work. And and these shows that we still just, I mean, when you look at how many shows were written in this decade alone, so fast, I mean, it blows my mind when you look at just Roger Tanner and Hammerstein alone. It's like 1943 was Oklahoma, 1940, I think it's 49 was South Pacific. It's like five shows within a decade that we just, nowadays, it feels like it takes 11 years to get a musical to the stage where it's in workshops. And so they were just these things were happening so fast and some of them were so good and a lot of them which we don't remember so well were not so good but yeah it's just a stellar list so we know that you know oklahoma is is based on the play green grow the lilacs and carousel is is inspired by lilium this one had a different birth this one came around in a different way what was the how did allegro come to be well, it was certainly an original idea, which was something that, um, as you said, neither Oklahoma nor Carousel was. Oscar Hammerstein basically had wanted to write the story of a man's life from birth until death. That was his hope. And he wanted it to be a serious piece. This had been something that he had been thinking about for a long time. So when they had this moment of what are we going to do next, Oscar Hammerstein thought maybe this would be a good time to to dive into that project, whatever form that project took. It didn't end up taking exactly the form that he had thought. It does start at the birth of the protagonist, but it only goes until he's about 35, um, which at the time I think counts as a midlife crisis. Now I think we would count that as a, as as an early life uh, issue. But um, 
So, so it wasn't quite the, uh, the whole epic scale that they had intended, but it was very, very, very different from not only what they had done before in many ways, but also anything that was in existence at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and still to this day, it's pretty nuts how innovative it is, how different it is, the sheer ambition of it, which they didn't manage to, I think, totally successfully achieve, but they wanted it to be truly a piece of epic theater in a way that you just didn't see on a Broadway musical stage. And, you know, I mean, we'll get into more what what they did that was different, but it's, it, when you hear about what this piece was from the beginning to what was on stage, it, I mean, you could put it on stage now and people would think you were being wildly avant-garde. Right. Well, and, and it's incredibly admirable when you're talking about two guys who very quickly found a, not a formula, but a, but a, but a, a language of how to approach music theater that they would on their third Broadway show after having already Hollywood calling and probably right offering them lots of money to make movies said, we're gonna actually do something wildly risky. Uh, we're, mm-hmm. gonna, we're gonna just go in an opposite direction of what you're hoping you're gonna walk in the, the door and experience. So it's so interesting to think that they just wanted to keep flexing their muscles and exercising their talent. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think now we think of them as these sort of heavy hitters, but also the quintessential sort of Broadway mainstream on some level, but they were very innovative, mm-hmm. not usually quite this innovative, mm-hmm. but they were almost always pushing boundaries in their shows in some way or another. And even, you know, directly after Allegro, when it was not the success that they had hoped for, and they probably wanted to prove themselves again to be back in in the realm of the solidly successful, you know, they chose South Pacific, which was a piece that they partially chose because they wanted to convey to the audience a very serious message about racism. So, you know, they never were quite... It's interesting that for people who were half producers, so very aware of what sells tickets and what audiences like and how to make something that is going to be a successful business proposition, they were also envelope pushing creatives. And the balance between those things was something that they really managed beautifully throughout their career for the most part. I think Allegro is definitely one where the creative part of them ended up dominating and the the success of the show was not there in the same way. Right. And of course, this is a, a collaboration, and they they hire Agnes DeMille, their their choreographer extraordinaire from who exploded onto the scene along with them in Oklahoma to direct this piece. Was this an easy production process? Uh, by all accounts, it was not. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, first of all, again, credit to Rodgers and Hammerstein. The idea of hiring one person to be both the director and choreographer was pretty much unheard of at the time. Hiring a woman to do both of those things was completely unheard of. So it was another example of them being groundbreaking. Although obviously for them, Agnes DeMille was someone that they had worked with before. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not a successful creative enterprise in that way. Um, Hammerstein had intended it to be something that was easily scalable mm-hmm. for community theaters and schools in the future. There was no set. There was no um, 
really anything on stage except for projections and some set pieces. So it was intended to be something that could be done by anybody, but it ballooned into this massive thing with, I think, 500 lighting cues, which was a record at the time. And just the scale of it became enormous. There was, I, I think, 99 cast members, um, an orchestra. There were dancers and singers. It was just a huge, huge thing. And I think the problem with Agnes DeMille was that there was a sense that she was very interested in the dancers because obviously she came from the dance world. That was her home base, but she had no patience for anybody else and really wasn't great at dealing with the actors or the singers. And some of this comes from actually one of the famous things about Allegro is that the young gopher on the show who was making $25 a week was Stephen Sondheim, who was obviously a protege of... Hammersteins. So hearing about Allegro through his eyes is really interesting, both for where it appears in his work later, but also um, he did not feel <laughs> that Agnes DeMille was uh, a good force on that show. And, and you hear a lot about, I think Agnes DeMille was so focused on the dancing that uh, Hammerstein and Rogers themselves ended up sort of stepping in and doing some of the staging with the, the other massive numbers of people who were on the stage and Hammerstein was really not able to I think realize the story he had intended to tell fully because they got locked into this right. process from development on the way to Broadway and they were so focused on these other things that they had on their plates so as I said, you know, in some ways it's, it does mirror what has happened to Joseph Taylor Jr. in the show, which is that they became so successful, they were actually kind of unable to do the thing that they were good at, which is just write the show. And right. that actually was kind of mirrored in this process because Hammerstein especially didn't really have the time to focus on the show to make it the show that he wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a big ship sailing straight to Broadway. So there's a general consensus that it was never quite finished in the way that they wanted it to be finished. And yet, you know, as so often is the case with a show, you have an opening night that's on the calendar. This is the night that we're opening and here we go, you know, and that is what went on to the stage and eventually went on to a national tour. And we're very fortunate to be able to have here uh, for all of us to experience, uh, they, they, they perform the show on radio and that's what we have right now. So why don't we go to that and then we'll wrap back on the other end and talk a little bit more about the production that uh, we're about to experience here. So right now on the November 25th, 1951 episode of the Theater Guild on the Air are Jane Powell as Emily, John Lund as Joseph Taylor Jr. And from the original Broadway cast, Roberta Jonay as Jenny Brinker in Rogers and Hammerstein's Allegro. build a better America through better steels and products of steel is the job of the industrial family that serves the nation, United States Steel. Look for our trademark, USS, on any steel product. It's your guide to quality steel. Jane Powell is appearing by arrangement with Metro-Golden-Mare, producers of the Technicolor picture, Quo Modis, starring Robert Taylor and Deborah Carr with a cast of thousands. United States Steel has brought tonight's Theater Guild on Air production to Detroit to honor this great city's 
250th birthday. Now the lights are going down here at the Masonic Auditorium, where nearly 5,000 people have gathered to join in this final national event of Detroit's birthday festival year. And here, speaking for the Theater Guild, one of America's foremost theatrical producers, is Elliot Reed with a word about our play and players. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Like all proper guests to a birthday party, we have brought a present, the musical play Allegro by Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein II, produced on Broadway by the Theater Guild. To star in it, John Lund as Joseph Taylor Jr. and Jane Powell as the nurse Emily have come on from Hollywood and Kenny Del Mar from New York, who tells the story. Featured as Jenny is Roberta Jonay, playing the part she played in the original Broadway production. Douglas Watson is featured as Charlie. So let's light the birthday candles marking 250 years of Detroit and incidentally 250 performances of the Theater Guild on the air as we proceed with Allegro, adapted for us by Robert Anderson and directed by Homer Fickett. <laughs> Town, boy name of Joseph Taylor Jr. Nothing very remarkable about Joe. That is nothing more remarkable than there is about any of us. But I like Joe. Like the way he handled himself when he came up against it. When he came up against the same sort of thing that can happen to any of us. Joe was born to Dr. and Mrs. Taylor on a lovely spring morning in 1905. Except for the day when she married Joe, this is the happiest day of her life. Except for the day when she married Joe, this is the happiest day of her life. Where have you been, Joe? Making the rounds, dear. You were asleep when I left. How do you feel? I feel like jumping out of bed and dancing. Oh, don't. How's old Skeezix? Oh, old Skeezix is asleep. Joe? Joe, you in there? Here I am, Mother, in with Marjorie. I'll take the young man into his crib. Oops, did you hear that? What? He brought up a bubble. Oh, isn't he clever? That's Grandma's good boy. Mother Taylor. What, Marjorie? Do you think he'll ever get to look any better? Oh, I sure he will. He'll look younger when he's older. Uh-huh. One morning, Joe decided that he's had enough of this crawling around on all fours. And he stood up all by himself. Marjorie, Marjorie, look. He's standing up. What? What's what that? He's standing up. Look, oh, he's falling. No, Marjorie, look. He's going to fall. No, look. He was almost falling, but he put one foot out to save himself. And he didn't fall. He, he, he took a step. Oh. He looked at him. He took another. Now you can go wherever you want, wherever you want to go. Oh! <laughs> 
And so Joe learned that going forward was easier than standing still. And he went forward, step by step, until all of a sudden, as his grandma used to say, he was a man. That is, he was enough of a man to be packing his bags and going away to college. The night before he left, Joe's mother and father were talking on the side porch. Don't look so mopey, Marjorie. The boy isn't going away forever. You're not his mother. That's the most unnecessary statement you've made this year. Well, you know very well what I mean. When he comes back for Christmas holidays, he'll be a different boy. I won't even know him. I'll point him out to you. Oh, you look kind of mopey yourself. Oh, I had another tough day. A lot of patience. And a couple of hours working on a hospital fund. You'll have your hospital someday, Joe. I just know it. You've got one of your feelings about it? Yes, I have a feeling. I hope Joe marries a girl who gets feelings about things. Do you suppose he'll marry Jenny Brinker? Oh, it's hard to say. You've been meeting a lot of new girls at college. It's only dumb luck when a boy picks the right girl the way I did. Ah, oh, you say that to make me feel good. Well, doesn't it? Ah, oh, boom. Oh, fun needs a girl to sit by his side at the end of a weary day. To sit by his side and listen to him talk and agree with the things he'll say. My fool needs a girl to hold in his arms when the rest of his world goes He was stopped by the freshman football hero, Charlie Townsend. Uh, your name's Taylor, isn't it? Why, yes. Joe Taylor, the junior. I'm Charlie Townsend. We seem to be taking the same courses. Oh, are you pre-med? Yeah, don't know why exactly. I got an uncle in Chicago who juggles pills. Say, uh, could I have a look at your notebook? Oh, sure. Here. I, uh, I've got a father who juggles pills. Hey, you take some notes. Would you let me borrow them? You can read the writing. Say, you doing anything tonight? Well, I was planning to... Do... I got a date with a girl, and she's got a sister who's going to be a nurse. Asked me to bring somebody along. Oh, uh, well, no thanks. I got a lot of Latin to translate. Okay, you take the dead languages, I'll take the live women. <laughs> Besides, uh, I got a girl back home, and uh, we're going to be married, I think. Okay, okay, I'll give you a rain check on it. <laughs> 
back home, Joe's girl, Jenny, and her friend Hazel used to sit on the side porch in the evening and talk about love and marriage. Jenny, don't you ever worry about you and Joe Taylor having to wait so long before you get married? Of course I worry, Hazel. And Papa's always telling me I'm a fool to even think of marrying a doctor. Why does he have to be a doctor, Jenny? Because his mother wants him to be. Her father was a doctor and her husband's a doctor. And if her darling son Joey isn't a doctor, this whole town will get sick and die. Gosh, I don't envy you, Jenny. With his mother against you, there isn't much you can do. Oh, I wouldn't say that, Hazel. There might be a lot I can do. It might take a little time, but I think there's a lot I can do. And so, in not very subtle ways that were nonetheless disturbing to Joe, Jenny began to do what she could do. Her letters to Joe began to read something like this. Remember, Hazel Skinner? She was over to see me today, and <laughs> I bet your ears burned. Hazel is going to marry a man named Bobby Martin. He's only one year older than you, but he's making lots of money selling automobiles. His family wanted him to be a lawyer, but he said the trouble with professions is that you study years and you're an old man before you make any money. Well, I guess that's all the news. Fondly, Jenny. When Joe was a senior in college, Mr. Brinker took a serious step. The kind of step fathers used to take to keep their daughters from marrying the wrong boy. He took her to Europe, and then he kept up her series of disturbing letters. Dear Joe, I met a charming boy named Bertram Woolhaven. His father is in the cold and lumber business, too. Bertram's teaching me how to swim. We're learning a new joke. Bertram is teaching me how to tango. As it would be for any young man, this was too much for our Joe. Hey, Charlie, how about your girl's sister? You know, Emily, the one that's going to be a nurse? Is she still available for a date? I'm afraid this date hasn't been much fun for you, Emily. Why not? Well, here I am seeing you home, and up to this point, I've done nothing but talk about Jenny. Let's talk about you. Oh, we don't have to. Well, maybe we don't, but I'd like to know something about you. Why? We'll probably never see each other again. Why, sure we will. We'll see. Now, look, I told you why I want to be a doctor. Now, you tell me why you want to be a nurse. Well, I suppose I sound a little noble if I said I, I like to help people. Well, that's obvious from tonight. Oh, you helped yourself. You talked yourself out of it. They're being mad at Jenny. But you listened. Oh, I'm an expert at that. Jenny doesn't know how much she owes to you. Take my advice. Don't tell her. You think she'd be jealous? Oh, she's human. Huh. Where are you going when you start nursing? Well, Charlie thinks his uncle, Dr. Denby, can use a fine, upstanding, 100% American girl like me in his office in Chicago. Well, did you ever think you might get married long before you could become a nurse? Mm, I don't think there's much danger of that. Why? Why? Well, because I always seem to be going out with fellas like you on the rebound. And like a fool, I always let them talk themselves right back into love with their old girls. Well, this is where I live. Oh. Oh, you don't have to see me to the door. Well, thanks for, well, for being so nice. And... Thank you, Joe. I had a fine time. Mm, not much, I'm afraid. 
But, well, maybe we can have another date sometime, and I won't talk about Jenny all the time. Just half the time. Yeah. How about next Friday? Are you sure you want to? Or you're just being polite? I'm sure. All right. Good night, Joe. Good night. See you Friday. Sure. We have nothing to remember so far. So far, so far, we haven't walked by night and shared the light of a star. So far, your heart has never fluttered so near, so near, that my own heart alone could hear it. We another engagement Friday night, so I won't be able to stop around. I'm, uh, I'm sorry, Emily. It's all right, Joe. I don't mind. Oh, gee, thanks, Emily. Bye. Goodbye, Joe. Jenny wrote Joe that it was all over between her and Bertram Woolhaven, and she was coming home. And then on a lovely evening in August, she was home. Hello, Joe. Hello, Jenny. You look different, Joe. You look different, too. Older? Prettier. <laughs> uh, Want to sit down in the hammock? Yes. Yes, I would. Nice night. It's just the kind of night I hoped it would be. Did you? Did you think much about tonight, too? Did you? Oh, I think of you quite a lot. There's never a day. Oh, Jenny, I think about you all the time. Do you, Jim? Every minute. You are never away from your home in my heart. There is never a day when you don't play a part. Or a song that I sing 
You're a rainbow I take on a morning in spring. You're a star in the lace of a wild willow tree. In the green leafy lace of a wild willow tree. But tonight you're no star for a song that I sing. In my arms where you are, you are sweeter. In my arms where you are, clinging closely to me, you are lovelier by far than I dreamed you could be.
Hi, this is Porchlight Marketing Manager Austin Packard. Thank you for listening to WPMT. If you value programming like this, please consider making a donation today at porchlightmusictheater.org. We appreciate your consideration and hope you enjoy the show. on the second act of Allegro, starring Jane Powell as Emily, John Lund as Joe Taylor, Kenny Delmar as the storyteller, and featuring Roberta Jonay as Jenny Brinker and Douglas Watson as Charlie Townsend. Yes, we were all there in the church to wish Joe and Jenny well. That was in 1928. The second year of Joe's practice, was the first year of the Depression. Hey, Jenny, what are you doing? Hi, hey, so I'm hanging up a watch. What's oh. the matter? I wanted you to look at the new chinchilla coat. You got a chinchilla coat in these times? Oh, not me, in the magazine. In Vogue, look. Let me see. Oh, to think some girls actually get coats like this. Yeah, they're the kind who don't do any housework. <laughs> look, look at the opposite page in articles. Oh, let's see, Jenny. Oh. Money isn't everything. Well, I don't want everything. I'll just take money. Let's see what it says. Money isn't everything. What can money buy? An automobile so you won't get wet. Champagne so you won't get dry. Money isn't everything. What have rich folks got? A Florida home so you won't get cold. A yacht so you won't get hot. An orchid or two, so you won't feel blue if you have to go out at night. And maybe a jar of caviar, so your appetite won't be nice. Oil tycoon and cattle king, radio troubadour. Be little luck from the fair fortune ring, and tell you that they are sure. Money is an air. 
Were you in such a hurry to leave the office this afternoon? I don't blame you, of course, when you're giving a party for Brooke Lansdale and all those important people. But, but see what I mean about the X-ray. Joe, Joe. Oh, Joe, here you are. Hello, Emily. Uh, hello, Mrs. Taylor. Uh, Joe, you must come up. Mrs. Lansdale is about to leave, and she wants to talk to you. Uh, Mrs. Brooke Lansdale. I know. Twenty million dollars, and she can't sleep. He wants to talk to you, Joe, about donating $300,000 for our new private pavilion. Well, I guess that's about as important to you as anything else can be right now, isn't it, Joe? I'll go right up to her. Doctor, shall I phone Mr. Martin and tell him his x-rays prove that he's uh, just fine and dandy? No. Wait till the morning. I'll look at it in the office. I don't trust his light. Joe, please, Mrs. Lansdale. All right, all right, I'm going. Oh, the trouble with Joe is he's inclined to give too much time to the little things and not enough to the things that count. Oh, I think he's learning, Mrs. Taylor. He's learning fast. Uh, well, if you'll excuse me, Emily, I'm sure you can find your way out. Good night. Good night. The boss gets on my nerves. I've got a good mind to quit. I've taken all I can. It's time to get up and dip. And move to another job, or maybe another town. The gentleman burns me up, the gentleman gets me down. The gentleman is a dope, a man of many faults. A clumsy Joe who wouldn't know a rumor from a walk. The gentleman is a dope. And not my cup of tea. Why do I get in a dealer? He doesn't belong to me. The gentleman isn't right. He doesn't know the score. A cake will come. He'll take a crumb. And never ask for more. The gentleman's eyes are blue. But little do they see, why am I beating my brains out? He doesn't belong to me. He's somebody else's problem. She's welcome to the guy. She'll never Thank you.
sent for me, Dr. Denby? Oh, yes, Joe. <laughs> yes. Come here and sit down. Oh, thank you. I wanted to tell you that you've won the regard of Brooke Lansdale for your work in the clinic. Yes. The approval of our biggest trustee is even more important than my approval, eh? Well, Dr. Denby. Oh, excuse me. Uh, hello? Mr. Tom? Uh, uh, the chairman of what committee? Oh, yes. yes. I know. It's the worst one in the city. Quite right. Quite right, Mr. Tom. A cesspool, a disease hatchery. I agree. Hmm? No, I will not go to the mayor. No, Mr. Tubb, our policy at the hospital is to keep out of politics. <laughs> eh? And I say to you, he, uh, what? You, you, do you know what that man called me? An old vitamin pot. Do you know what else he called me? I, uh, uh, Charlie, come in here. There was a fellow just on the phone. Do you know what he called me? A mechanical bottom jabber. I was... Was that you on the phone, Charlie? Yes. Well, if that's all Uncle. you... Uncle. Uncle. What? I just heard you fired Carrie Middleton on the fifth floor. Yes, yes. She was stirring up trouble among the nurses. You know, I seem to remember an old photograph at home. You and Carrie Middleton at the Chicago World's Fair when she was a student nurse. Yes, well, of course. Yes. yes. Well, don't you think that's pretty rugged for a woman that's been here 25 years? The fire for that? My boy, there's such a thing as discipline. Loyalty. We must do many things we don't want to do. Duty. We must be good soldiers. Oh. Uh, Dr. Denby, Mr. Lansdale is waiting. Oh, well, all right. Uh, Brooke. Uh, yes, yes, coming, Brooke. Well, look, you two, you don't have to give me that fishy stare. He's un only my uncle by marriage. Charlie, I'm sick of Lansdale coming in here and ordering us around like office boys. That, that, my boy. Duty, duty, duty. Mm, you must be good soldiers. Well, I'm sick of it. So am I. But I'm not going to do anything about it, are you? I don't know. Well, you better know before you tell off either Mr. Lansdale or my uncle. They won't listen to any sentimental discussion about the honor and dignity of medicine, etc., etc., etc. Our world is for the forceful and not for sentimental folk, but brilliant and resourceful and paranoid gentlefolk. Not for sentimental folk. Allegro, a musician, would so describe the speed of it. The clash and competition of counterpoint. The need of it? We cannot prove the need of it. We know no other way of living out our day. Our music must be galloping and gay. We muffle all the undertones, the minor blood and thundertones. The overtones are all we care to play. Hysterically frantic, we are stubbornly romantic. And talking is determined to be gay. Rip, spiky, merry, and bright, leg Same tempo, morning to night, leg Don't stop whatever you do. Do something busy and new. Keep up the colorful allegro. 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 And we spin and we spin Playing a game no one can win The men who corner wheat The men who corner tin The men who rule the airways The denizens of tin They spin and they spin They spin and they spin A girl to dig for gold And won't give in for tin 
the lilies of the field so femininely thin. They toil not, they toil not, but oh, how they spin. Oh, how they spin. on the third act of Allegro, starring John Lund, Jane Powell, Kenny Delmar, and featuring Douglas Watson and Roberta Jonay. Morning, Dr. Taylor. Good morning, Emily. Anybody waiting? Oh, the zoo is packed. Hmm, you look kind of low today, boss. Getting sour on rich city people? No, no, why should I? With this fancy crowd of hypochondriacs that we get... Who's out there now? Well, Mrs. Landale just arrived. And... I knew you must be in by now. Oh, uh, Mrs. Landale. Nurse, I... why didn't you tell me he was in here? Oh, well, he asked me to not... What I've got to say won't take long, Dr. Taylor. The other night I was just dozing off about two in the morning when the phone rang. It was my husband to say that he'd be home late. It then occurred to me that most nights I lie awake wondering when and if he's coming home. Well, he works too hard. So I put is. a detective on it. Well, it seems that my husband has got himself a girl. Here's a carbon copy of the report. Oh, Mrs. Lansdale, this is a private matter. Oh, I don't care if the nurse hears. The papers will have it tomorrow when I fly to Reno. Well, is there anything you want me to do? You want something to quiet your nerves? No. I want to enjoy this. You might read that detective's report when you get time. It'll give you quite a kick. Good afternoon. Emily, isn't there anyone in that waiting room with a broken arm or a gallstone? Is there anybody out there worth a doctor's time and knowledge? Can't you scare us up a ruptured appendix or a pair of infected tonsils? What kind of practice is this, anyhow? I've got to spend my time reading reports like this. Private detectives who... who spy on wives and husbands. Emily, do you know who Mr. Lansdale's girl is? Yes, I do. Does everybody know, except me? They seem to. You know what's very sad about this? The heartbreaking part of it is that I don't care. I must have stopped loving Jenny some time ago. I didn't know it. Not until this minute. Somewhere in this rat race, somewhere along the line, 
We lost each other. Now she's Lansdale's girl. And it means no more to me than just another cheap little setup like so many that pass through this office every day. They have no faint resemblance to love. There's nothing real about any of it. Nothing real about the whole place. What am I doing here? What am I doing here? Feeling better, Doctor? What? Oh, Emily. Yes, I... I was just remembering something. Oh, uh, Joe! There you are, Joe. Mr. Mansfield here has something to say to you. Charlie boy, come in here and listen. listen. Oh, my boy, you're about to be made physician-in-chief to this hospital. Youngest man ever appointed. You will be the head man. We're making Big Bidenby president of the medical board. I'm being kicked upstairs. <laughs> what do you say, Joe? Well, I don't know what to say. Well, what do you say, Emily? Well, gee, well, again. Well, I hope you're not so tongue-tied, Joe, when you get in front of the trustees. <laughs> Come on, Joe, we're late. Yes, yes, of course. I know one little lady who'll be proud of her husband's day. Well, what are you thinking about, nursing? Oh, just thinking how hard it is for a man like Joe to get off a merry-go-round after it gets going fast. Well, I can understand a girl getting stuck on a fellow like Joe. Wouldn't blame her. You wouldn't? Thanks, pal. Want to take a day off and go to a burlesque show? Mm, I don't know. I think the dedication ceremony will be funnier. And now, gentlemen, it is my pleasure and honor to present the man to whom we are dedicating this bronze tablet in the new private pavilion. Big B. Denby, M.D., physician, scientist, humanitarian, and better than all these, an executive. To use his own phrase, he has been a good soldier. Bigby Denby has for years given up all I
has run it over. My heart is so full, words fail me. And yet, I feel I must in some The crackle and the tattle, the gap and the gush, the chatter and the patter and the twaddle and the touch. Oh, ah, and ah, and ah, and ah. My co-worker, my young but very talented friend, Joseph Taylor, Jr., the youngest man ever to receive this appointment. Ladies and gentlemen, this comes to me as a complete surprise. I look upon this appointment as a challenge. One must approach with deep humility the task of succeeding so illustrious a predecessor as Dr. Bigby Denby. He has been an ornament to medicine, an ornament to his city, an ornament... It takes a special talent to be an ornament. I am not blessed with this talent. I must therefore, I must therefore decline the appointment. You can't do that, Joe. Please, Jenny. I have another offer in a small hospital where my father is physician-in-chief. I'll be his assistant. You fool. Please, Jenny. You talk like an idiot schoolboy. The big city is a wicked place, and all the people in small towns are good and pure. No, I don't say that. You came from a small town. Big towns are filled with good people and bad people, good doctors and bad doctors, and so are small towns. I just happened to strike the wrong crowd. So all I can do is go back among people I know I can help and start all over again. I'm going home. Now, look here, Joe, you can't do this. What'll I tell the papers? Why don't you tell them just what I said? Tell the papers he's just a small-town doctor. Okay, tell them that. Now you can do whatever you want, whatever you want to do. Dr. Taylor, wait a minute. Can you use a nurse back there? Come on, Emily. Here you are in the wonderful world, has fallen on the Theater Guild on the Air production of Allegro, sponsored by the United States Steel Corporation. We express our thanks to our stars, Jane Powell as Emily, John Lund as Joe Taylor, and Kenny Delmar as Bigby Denby, and to Roberta Jornet, who was featured as Jenny Brinker, and to Douglas Watson, who was featured as Charlie Townsend. Our thanks also to the other members of our cast, whom you heard in these roles, as Marjorie Taylor, Shannon Boland, as Dr. Taylor, Bob Shackleton, as Hazel, Pat England, as Brooke Lansdale, Elliot Reed, and as Mrs. Lansdale, Florida Freitas. And as the singing voice of Joe, John Baker of the Metropolitan Opera Company. Now here again is Elliot Reed with a word about next week's play. Next week, ladies and gentlemen, the Theater Guild on the Air will bring you Rosalind Russell and Walter Abel in Good Housekeeping, a modern comedy of a wife who believed that keeping house included keeping the reins on her husband's ambitions and an eye on her daughter's romances. We hope you'll be with us. Thank you. 
remember next week on the United States Steel, our good housekeeping, starring Rosalind Russell and Walter Abel. And remember, too, that the trademark of United States Steel, USS, on any steel product is your guide to quality steel. The Theater Guild on the Air is under the supervision of Lawrence Langner and Teresa Halvern with our minor Marshall executive producer. S. Mark Smith is editor. Music was conducted by Harold Levy. John Lund may currently be seen starring in the Paramount picture, Darling, How Could You? Your announcer is Norman Brokenshire. The United States Steel Corporation hopes that you'll be with us next Sunday at the same time. So that was Rogers and Hammerstein's Allegro. Uh, Annika, what was the response from the audience and the critics? We know that sometimes they can be divided in terms of, you know, of, of how people receive something, especially Rogers and Hammerstein. What was the response to the show originally? I mean, divided, I think, is is very much the right word. There were people who said, this is brilliant. This is the next big thing. This is innovative and going to change the form forever. There were critics who said this is terrible and worthless and an embarrassment for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and the audience, I think in general, just didn't quite go for it is the best way to put it. They didn't quite, I think, have the love-hate relationship with it that the critics had, but it was a sort of modest success. It had the largest advance sales uh, in Broadway history at that time. It was $750,000, which was wildly enormous. Tickets, um, t- tickets were like, what, five or six bucks? Um, yeah, like four, I think 450, something like that. So, and, and that was, you know, most shows to have a hundred thousand advance would be great. Um, but once the audiences had kind of seen it once, it sort of petered out and it, I think it lasted about 10 months, which was decent, but not not the super successes that Rodgers and Hammerstein had had before. Um, I think audiences were just kind of flummoxed by it. It was a weird piece. I think it was a weird piece to watch. Um, it's, it's unusual in its structure. Mm-hmm. It's unusual in the way it is formed. And the message of it, I think, was a little muddy. People felt very much that they were giving a message that a country life is pure and cities are full of people who are corrupt. And that that's not what they intended, but that's sort of what came across. And it just was sort of not something that resonated with people in a, in a great way. And, and in a commercial sense of the word, as I recall, I mean, I understand that to some degree, they were a bit inspired by our town. Uh, the- yes play that it opened in 1938. So it wasn't that mm-hmm. long before and the idea of doing a musical with a, a similar structure. But at, at the time, I would assume that as stagecraft was becoming more and more sophisticated and large and opulent to walk in your expectations, they, there must have been dashed by where's the set? Where's yeah. the stuff? You know? Yep. The first thing you saw was a woman who had just given birth. And then there was this ensemble that was a sort of Greek chorus that would speak people's feelings. And you didn't actually meet your protagonist as a physical person on stage until about 20 minutes into the show when he showed up as a sort of teenager. So there was this kind of unusual thing in terms of that. It took a long time to meet the person, the character you're supposed to care about most. A lot of the big songs were given to very minor characters who sort of flowed through the piece and then never appeared again. 
there was a lot of innovation in the way they did it. It was supposed to be kind of constantly flowing. So there was never quite, which, which Roger and Hammerstein has sort of done before to a degree in Carousel and having the music weave through, if you think of like the bench scene in Carousel, that's a good example of, it's hard to delineate when like the songs start and end, but the whole piece was sort of like that. So it, and there were these dancers. I mean, it was just, the whole thing was unusual, I think. And so I think people had a little bit of a rough time grabbing onto it as a real narrative arc, basically a narrative train. You just couldn't quite get on the train. Is it safe to say that this was the first, if not at least one of the first, what we would now know as a concept musical, you know, by that stretch of the term? Yeah, I think so. It's often credited as that. And it, it certainly matches that description for me. I mean, I think their intention going into it was to do this life story about um, one person and, and all of these innovations they had. Uh, it was a really interesting idea. And Sondheim actually was very influenced by it. Sondheim, who is often accused of writing concept musicals and, and clearly is someone who approaches things on a very intellectual theory base sometimes, although obviously with a lot of heart as well. Uh, he has a great quote that he says, I realize that I'm trying to recreate Allegro all the time. Wow. So I think even though it wasn't really a success in the way that they had hoped, either on a commercial level or quite on the artistic level they had hoped, what they were trying was so bold that it really set a template or inspired some artists who came after uh, Sondheim clearly being the, the most prominent one. Right. Aside from the inspiration, obviously, that this this left Sondheim and so many other people probably who walked away with it, you know, at that time, you think of like Lerner and Lowe were starting to work at this time and other people who would then appear in the 50s and have to really respond to the work of Rodgers and Hammerstein. The actual show itself, what has become of it? We don't remember that Rodgers and Hammerstein also had a few lesser successful shows than The King and I and The Sound of Music, this being one of them. What's happened to Allegro? Uh, why don't we see it as much? Or, or do we? And we, you know, is it is it being done? Well, it's not being done a lot. I think it's definitely the one that stuck in both Rodgers and Hammerstein's craw as the one that never quite got a fair shake. And I know actually Hammerstein was intending to revisit it and fix it, I don't want to say, but go back into it and see if he could finesse it and make it more the show that he wanted it to be, that he thought he could be. And actually when he died, he was working on adapting it for a television version. So there are options for what could have happened had he lived longer. Perhaps it would have been something that he could have made into something that was more successful. Subsequently, it's not done a ton, I think, partially because it's an odd one. You know, I mean, some of the songs are really, really beautiful, but there's an odd mix of sour and sweet in the plot. And it is a little bit strange in terms of the message you come away with. It's an odd mix of Hammerstein's big hearted optimism and this kind of cynical reality of what success is like. So there's a lot of stuff to parse out. Certainly it has emerged in some very interesting ways. I mean, Classic Stage Company a few years ago did a, a very pared down version that John Doyle directed, which was very interesting. And some people have tried to kind of dive in there and 
really pair out all the many things about the show that are very interesting. There's a really beautiful, uh, large cast album recording that they did, a kind of concept album, I think about 10 years ago now with Audra McDonald and Nathan Gunn and Patrick Wilson and Laura Benanti, which kind of fully realized in a really beautiful way how gorgeous the score is. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I think the combination of the oddness of the story and the fact that it it just doesn't quite work mm -hmm. has kept people away from it. Although I do feel like someone's going to dive in there and find something in there that's going to make it work in a really beautiful way because there's so much richness in it. Right. Well, it's Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's bound to have uh, lots of gold in there worth digging for mm -hmm. if, if, if you get the opportunity. And we're so lucky to have this radio version of it, which was done nearly around the same time that the show was on Broadway to get a sense of what it felt like then. Mm -hmm. Annika Chapin, I'm so happy that you were able to join with me today and teach me a little bit about this show. I learned so much from you and loved discovering more about this show and Rodgers and Hammerstein. And I appreciate your being with us. Oh, well, thank you so much. This is one of my favorite things to talk about shows with people like you and who other people who love this stuff. So this is a great joy. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Theaters across the country need your support now, more than ever. We hope you'll consider a donation to Porchlight Music Theater today. Just go to porchlightmusictheater.org. Until next time on Classic Musicals from the Golden Age of Radio, I'm Michael Becker.